With so many theories and ideas and even misinformation about coronavirus out there, here's a chance to make sense of what is actually happening in Nevada County. I recently sat down with Nevada County Public Health Officer Dr. Scott Kellerman. I've heard a lot of vaccine-hesitant people talk about early treatment, and I don't quite understand what that means. You know, they say that early treatment isn't being done or it isn't being reported, and that early treatment would have an effect on COVID-19 statistics. What is early treatment as it relates to COVID-19? Well, thanks, Claudia. Good question. You know, as a doc, what we want to do is patients come in early in the course of the disease. Don't wait. That's predicated on the fact that we have good treatments. If you come in early on and you got a little pneumonia, we can give you an antibiotic or urinary tract infection. Cancers, if we see them early, the results are a whole lot better than, than waiting. Pretty much the early treatment is outpatient treatment for COVID-19. This is in reference to COVID-19. And we look at people that if they have COVID-19 and we think they will not do well, then we jump on it really quickly. We give monoclonal antibodies and we give a drug called remdesivir, an antiviral drug, sometimes steroids. And as a result, we prevent them from coming to a hospital, prevent them having an adverse out- outcome. Most of the therapies, some of the alternative therapies you've heard about are used to obviously in early therapy also, in early treatment. Um, the efficacy is is still being looked at, and I assume you'll ask me about some of those therapies here as we move along. You know, I, I've seen a lot of doctors online being cited, various social media platforms, that claim that a combination of hydroxychloroquine with, uh, I guess it's pronounced azithromycin. They say that these doctors claim that these drugs in combination with zinc can help both keep people out of the hospital and for those that are already hospitalized can lessen either the effects of the disease or shorten the course of the disease. Is there any evidence that supports these claims? Well, as you know, um, not long ago, hydroxychloroquine was touted as being the the end-all and be-all. This was the drug I'm very familiar with these drugs because hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine are used for malaria. Where I work in Africa, we use, we've used these drugs with some degree of regularity, although we have switched to quinine rather than chloroquine or hydroxychloroquine. I still use hydroxychloroquine. It's very useful as an immune modulator in treating rheumatoid arthritis. Uh, studies have shown, you know, there was initially a lot of excitement about the drug. It's cheap, but it's not ineffective. A review of 12 studies and about 8,500 patients in countries around the world. And some of these studies were funded by the manufacturers who made hydroxychloroquine, um, did not reduce the amount of virus in the person's system, did not prevent hospitalization, and did not prevent death. So um, most practitioners believe that to consider hydroxychloroquine or chloroquine, azithromycin, which is an antibiotic, it doesn't work on a virus, um, is certainly inappropriate in the setting of COVID-19. It's been shown to be ineffective. And it has side effects. That's the other little problem. It does have side effects. Yeah, cardiac side effects. So it's not an innocuous drug. I've heard also about uh, ivermectin. Can you explain what that is and, and what it's used for? Yeah, ivermectin's a really interesting drug. I've used it uh, quite frequently, again, in sub-Saharan Africa. It's used to treat worms, nematodes, strongyloides, onchocerca. Alcacerca is, um, is a cause of river blindness. Um, there's a veterinary usage also. Uh, if you look at uh, dog heartworm medicine, sometimes it'll be mectan or ivermectin. 
that works on diet in their uh, diflariamitans. Ivermectin is an immune modulator, potential antiviral activity. Um, and it had early success. You know, people, early studies, small studies, in reviewing 24 random, the real question was there were small studies, 20 to 400 people each, and, um, and the deaths were not very, uh, not very many. There are 128 deaths in there. So it really was hard to get much of a conclusion. Merck, the manufacturer of it, of this drug, has suggested it not be used for COVID-19. And an Argentinian uh, randomized control study of only 500 people said it did not prevent hospitalizations. But some studies are looking like it has, has the potential. So we're looking at it. I mean, I think ivermectin is an inexpensive drug with relatively uh, few side effects. Just remember that if you, it's mainly used in veterinary medicine here in America, so don't use the same dose choose for a horse. You know, that'd be a real mistake. Some people have gotten some real trouble with that. Um, and then I would check with your doc. But there are some interesting studies using ivermectin. And so the jury's out right now, but we don't have enough information now to recommend its usage. And like I say, the drug manufacturer is not recommending it. Other interesting drugs have been studied, even at the University of Washington, just north of us, is antidepressants, particularly one called Luvox. Again, they're immune modulators. And and they've showed some um, really exciting promise. Um, but until we get all the, the data to show they're effective and, and without side effects, then they're not, they're not really uh, recommended for use by, by physicians or uh, healthcare providers. What is an immune modulator? What does that mean? Well, one of the treatments for COVID is to give dexamethasone. That is an immune modulator. It, it really um, it quiets down your immune system. A lot of times with these viruses, you get an overabundance of immunity, and it can cause some organ damage just from that. Uh, rheumatoid arthritis, you have um, a reaction against your own own joints, and that's and so you modulate that immunity. You want to. There are certain immune modulators that are not good. Uh, vitamin D deficiency makes you uh, more susceptible to disease. It affects immune con. You know, cascade vitamin A, the same thing. Uh, we found vitamin A uh, deficiency in sub-Saharan Africa was around 50% in kids. And if you're vitamin A deficient and you uh, happen to contract measles, you're 40% more likely to die than if you were not immune, if you were not vitamin A deficient. So these things somehow um, affect your immunity, either make it, um, we want the right amount of immunity to fight any kind of bacteria or virus. And then returning to, you know, you were saying that Merck has has stated that ivermectin should not be used for COVID-19. They don't recommend it. So when a doctor does that, is that what's considered uh, off-label use? Could you talk about what off-label means? You're right. That is off-label use, uh, Claudio. Um, you can use drugs off-label as long as you're writing a chart or in the record that this is the reason. These are the studies that show that it can be effective. Um when I practiced medicine up here, there was a drug, um, uh, Artemeter, for malaria. It, it was not approved in the United States for malaria use, but it had been studied extensively overseas and it was very effective. So whenever I treated malaria here, I would bring some back from, from Africa. It, it took a while, now it's approved, but just cite the studies to show it's effective and give the medicine, and, and no, we're not constrained. We follow medical advice. We follow CDC and the recommendations of um, American Medical Association and um, other peer-reviewed articles. We try to follow the science, 
And if the science indicates it's it's valuable, then we tend to use those drugs. And if it tends to use, either it's got a lot of side effects or it has um, it's not effective, then we don't use them. Some of these doctors claim that they are not being allowed to treat their patients with these drugs, that they're not even allowed to talk about these drugs as a potential treatment. And some people claim that, you know, the, the CDC and that the WHO and perhaps even the AMA are telling them what they can and cannot do. I was hoping you could talk to me about how these organizations affect the daily practices of a doctor. We pretty much don't. I mean, doctors, you can practice fairly independently. We have to practice independently. You know, I'm a county medical officer, and the board can't tell me how to practice. They can fire me, but they can't tell me how to practice medicine. If I'm on hospital staff, the hospital will tell me that these are the drugs in the formulary and these are the drugs you should be using. If you're in private practice, you have a fair amount of autonomy. However, your results ought to be pretty good. If for some reason the patients in your practice are not doing well, if they're dying and the patient and the doc down the street is treating the same conditions and they're not dying, somebody's going to be talking to you pretty quickly and reviewing your records, see if you're following kind of standard medical practices. And if you're not, you could lose your license. Um, these alternative drugs have not been proved to be effective so far. They might be. Ivermectin, as I mentioned, some of the antidepressants might prove to be effective and then will be used more generally. Right now, it's just a research tool. And if, you use it, if a doc uses them, they have to bear in mind that this is not a commonly accepted medication for a disease that is potentially fatal. Okay, so moving, moving to vaccines. I want to talk to you a little bit about them. And if you'll permit me to ask sort of a simple question, could you, for my sake, explain how a vaccine works? Vaccines came from William Jenner, smallpox. They found he's looking around his community and noticed that the, uh, the, the women that milked the cows um, were not getting smallpox because they had contracted a disease called cowpox. So he took the cowpox virus and kind of scratched into the skin of a kid. That experiment couldn't be done today, and 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 then administer smallpox to the kid to see how you do. And the kid did did not develop smallpox. That's the reason vaccine comes from vodka cow. That was the original derivation of it. And smallpox is a real problem. Besides producing the blisters and the sores and disfigurement, thirty uh, percent of the people die. So it's a dangerous disease. So that was the origin of vaccinations from Baca. Um, many of the vaccines are just either live attenuated viruses, which mean it's a virus, um, but they've made it so it won't hurt you, and they administer that, and you develop antibodies to it. Or a kill virus, um, poliovirus, you know, for instance. It was initially producing eggs. Now it's a cell line, so people with egg allergies don't have to worry about that. But it's a live attenuated virus, which means it's, it's, um, it's, it's made non-virulent, and then you're given the virus. And then you develop antibodies. So when the wild virus, the one, you know, the one you don't want to get, comes along, you have antibodies ready to fight it. How are these new RNA vaccines, like the COVID vaccine, different from, say, the flu vaccine? The science behind messenger RNA has been around a long time, probably 30 years. And actually, a guy named Bill Kelly, pretty extraordinary guy that, our paths across several times, started a lab at the University of Pennsylvania to develop a gene-based vaccine. First gene-based vaccine was not COVID. It was uh, a DNA vaccine for Ebola. 
I, mean, I live in sub-Saharan Africa, and right next door in the Congo in Uganda, where I stay a few kilometers away is the Congo, and in Congo they were uh, had an Ebola pandemic that uh, lasted for a couple of years. And they developed a DNA vaccine. The science came out of this University of Pennsylvania lab. And they immunized the people in sub-Saharan Africa and in the Congo against Ebola. And this was a war-torn area that um, no running water, no paved roads, no electricity. And yet, uh, six months ago, the Ebola epidemic was declared over. They're able to immunize the people in that area of the world. Can't we immunize Nevada County? That's a rhetorical question. But the messenger RNA are a whole new science. And science is so exciting, and the vaccine was seemed so promising. I was part of the trials at UC Davis. What messenger RNA is, you get a shot of messenger RNA. And what the RNA does is go into your cells, and it tells your cells to make a protein. That's all it does, and it dies. It's gone. And the protein you make is the spike protein that's on the outside of the COVID-19 virus. You've seen pictures of them around the globe and all these spikes on the side. And they found those spikes are important for replication and survival of the virus. So all it does is put a piece of the spike on the outside of, the, of your cell, your T cells and your B cells, which are the immune, immune complexes in your, in your body, come along and recognize that as being foreign and make antibodies to it. And then they wait. Uh, they form memory T cells and B cells and say, if we ever get something that looks like that spike protein, we're going to kill it. And so if you happen to be challenged uh, with uh, SARS virus and it enters your system, then these memory T cells and memory B cells will go and destroy it. It's real simple. So all it does is make a protein. It doesn't make the virus. It doesn't make the DNA of the virus. It doesn't do anything like that. It just makes a protein. And your body recognizes that protein is foreign and then kills it. And the memory T cells and the memory B cells last for months to years. Uh, it's an amazing vaccine. My guess is all vaccines will be uh, messenger RNA-based in the future because they are so safe and so effective. Do you think that future vaccines will require two doses? Or is that something particular to the COVID vaccine? Well, Johnson & Johnson is just one dose. That's a DNA vaccine. Um, Probably need a second dose, probably to boost your immunity up to what it ought to be. Um, but we just don't know. We don't know what the future holds. We don't know what the vaccines will look like. We don't know what the diseases will be challenged with in the future. That's the stuff of future shows here, Claudio. So there are people that claim that the vaccine, the COVID vaccine, the three, as you mentioned, Johnson & Johnson is a single shot. We have Moderna and also Pfizer. There are people that claim that the COVID vaccine, and, and where I found it, they online, people refer to it simply as the COVID vaccine. They don't say Pfizer, Moderna, or J&J. &J. They'll just say the COVID vaccine. And they'll say that the COVID vaccine has more, quote, adverse events than any other vaccine or all other vaccines combined. Is that true? And, and if you could explain what an adverse event is and how, how it relates to vaccines... Well, the, the VAERS is Adverse Event Reporting System, as you mentioned, and um, it is it is patient and physician driven. If a, if a physician sees an adverse event, he's required to report patients or not. So if you go in and get a poke and you got a headache, yeah, you can report it. And there's nothing wrong with that, and actually it's encouraged. If you have anything you don't like, um, you know, maybe you had a little malaise, you don't feel good for a few hours or... You just, um, you know, you feel like you got a little virus. You can report that. So, yeah, there's a lot of people reporting, and we really 
we collate that information, the CDC and Food and Drug Administration, the FDA, takes that information and sees if we have a problem or not, and then starts investigating it. So it's a wonderful reporting system. There are a lot of events being reported. The investigations have not proved that this vaccine has caused much of a problem. I mean, I remember when I first took this job in January, we started immunizing very elderly people who were very frail in nursing homes and skilled nursing facilities, and they tolerated the vaccine incredibly well. And now they're protected. And I would think that all the people we immunize, I mean, we've given three billion of these shots around the world, and, and we're not seeing much in the way of adverse events. Uh, from this, a few, I'm sure you're going to ask me about the few that we do see, and we take those very, very seriously. There's a lot of reports, and we follow it up, but very few adverse events that are true. So one of the adverse events that I've heard about is uh, myocarditis. What is that, and what generally causes that? Well, myocarditis can be caused by a lot of things. I mean, obviously, having the SARS-CoV-2 virus can cause it. Actually, it causes that in a fairly, you know, study, a small study, small sampling of studies shows that it is a significant problem um, with people that have the infection. Myocarditis is just an infl- inflammation of the heart muscle. It's very rare. Uh, we probably have um, you know, more than just more than a thousand uh, cases of it have been reported. I think about 1,200 cases. Uh, 81% of them have cleared up with really very minimal treatment and just go home. The other 19% have been more problematic. It's very, very rare. We're not sure what exactly the numbers are, but it's probably around 16 um, per million it occurs. And again, it's a very, it tends to be very transient things. Um, we've delivered well in excess of 177 million doses here in the U.S. and and again, 3 billion worldwide. So we've got a lot of opportunities to study this vaccine and Although it is a problem, and we ought to watch for it, um, it mainly affects males under the age of 30, um, and is a, but the rate is very, very minimal, 16 per 1 million. So you, it sounds like you have a higher chance of contracting myocarditis from the disease than you would from the vaccine. Is that fair to say? As far as hospitalization goes, we don't see it from the vaccine. We see it from the disease. Science is clear. Look at the data. Month of June. of all deaths in the month of June from COVID-19 were in the unimmunized group. Small fraction were in the immunized group. So the real problem with the Delta variant is that um, it's very, very contagious. The Alpha variant, which, um, you know, we thought was very contagious, 50% more than the original strain, more contagious. This Delta variant is 60% more contagious than than the Alpha one of the reasons is they've done studies um, of sampling viruses in people's lungs that have COVID-19 from Delta and found that as opposed to the original strain, uh, people who are unimmunized and have COVID-19, the Delta strain, have 1,200 times the amount of virus in their lungs. So you're very, very, very contagious. So the good news about immunization is not only will it prevent you from getting infected, but it also prevents you from spreading it to the you know, the folks you love. And actually, Pope Francis has said um, it's an act of charity simply because of that. You know, don't spread this virus. I agree you have the right not to get the immunization. Uh, you don't have the right to spread it to others. Keep it to yourself. You mentioned the Delta variant. I've heard that there is some data showing that the vaccine, I think specifically Pfizer, is not as 
as effective against the Delta variant. Could you talk a little bit about that? Good question again, Claudio. I mean, I think you ought to be the other end of the mic. Um, you seem to know a lot about this disease. <laughs> it, um, yeah, it's true. Um, it is it is effective. Um, the efficacy has gone down a bit uh, with the Delta variant, but it still is a very effective vaccine. The Delta variant does not seem to be any more virulent. We're still as a work in progress to understand. In other words, it causes far more infections than the other ones because it's more contagious, but it, its killing power is no greater than the original strain, we think. Some are coming up from uh, Peru, all oh, this Greek alphabet, the lambda is very contagious, and, and it looks like it is more virulent, will causes more severe side effects. Um, it turns out if you are immunized, as I mentioned, you only got... You know, most all the deaths were in in folks that um, uh, were unimmunized. And, but we're getting a lot of virus in this community. 83% of all new cases of the Delta variant in America. So it's here. It is here a lot. And the case, case counts going up in Nevada County. Uh, I don't even remember a few months ago, we used to have the tiered system, purple, red, orange. Um, in yellow, uh, and we kind of hung around the red for a while. We were purple, finally made it red, and finally made it to orange. And then I was real pleased. Our numbers now were back into purple. Now that doesn't define closure of business. Does not or does not define closure of schools. It just defines the level of virus we have in this community, and it is substantial. So if I'm understanding you correctly, what you're saying is, so in, on June 15th, you know, the governor lifted the tier system. I believe what I'm hearing you tell me is that if we were still under that tier system, Nevada County would be officially in the purple. We're looking purple. It's not a pretty color. No, that's a problem. Uh, we have a lot of virus circulating in this community. And the vaccine has been compared to like wearing a raincoat when it's rainy outside. Um, you know, you wear it. And if it's a little misting, uh, you're not going to get wet at all. If it's really dumping, uh, you may get a little wet. Um, there are a few people that are immunized in the breakthroughs, uh, but you tend not to be soaked and you're not going to die. Very unlikely you'll end up in the ICU and very unlikely you'll be hospitalized. It'll be like a mild infection. People have said that there have been a number of significant adverse events here in our county. And so I want to directly ask you, have you heard of any 18-year-olds having heart attacks as a result of receiving the vaccine or people in their 20s having strokes after receiving the vaccine here in Nevada County? Have you heard anything about this? No. <laughs> There's no. I talk to the hospital every day. Not quite every day, but very, very often. And then we uh, talk with the, the staff and administration there on a formal basis at least once a week. And I review death certificates it's not true. I can tell you if it was true, I would know about it. And you would have me on this show. And you should be grilling me and, and I should be grilled. Uh, it's not true. So returning back to people who are hesitant to get the vaccine, it seems like a lot of people, as previously mentioned, are doing, you know, these risk benefit analysis for themselves. And it sounds like they really do think that the disease itself is relatively mild for people that are healthy and that really it doesn't make sense for them to risk taking what they're claiming is a completely untested COVID-19 vaccine. And for them, 
when they do the math for themselves, it's just not worth the risk. What do you say to people like that? Um, I think we need a conversation. You should have them on the show. We should talk. Um, I'm willing to communicate with them. Public health helps people's back. You know, we support people and we want to continue the conversation. I think it's inappropriate. Um, we are seeing people that get hospitalized who are younger. The average age of people getting the virus is, is substantially lower than it was initially, simply because a lot of the older people in our community have become immunized. It's just moving down the ladder. We do see people that get very sick uh, from COVID. And then we see people who have carried symptoms of COVID for a prolonged period of time, making them you know, literally incapacitated. And then the last thing is that, you know, um, you don't want to spread this to your friends and family and loved ones. Uh, you're not going to do that if you're immunized. If you're unimmunized and you get it, um, about 40% of the people that spread the infection are asymptomatic. Yeah, you talked about very little symptoms. There are people that have no symptoms. Yeah, maybe got a little cough or something, and, and they get together with a group and they're talking or gathering, maybe doing a little singing. Uh, you're going to spread it, and um, and you don't want to give this virus to somebody else, so get immunized. Can you talk a little bit about COVID-19 long haulers? Because for some people, it's not just an inconvenience. It goes on for a while, doesn't it? It certainly can. I mean, I'm, I'm sure everybody in this community is aware of Lyme disease and, you know, the chronic nature of Lyme disease. We still don't understand it, similarly with covid there's actually two clinics for long haulers, one at Tahoe Forest and the other one at UC Davis. Um, and they're for people that are debilitated from um, long haul COVID. The, most statistics are 10 to 15% of the people that um, uh, have a COVID infection end up with chronic problems that last weeks or months or even longer. Uh, and the chronic symptoms are they lose their taste or their smell that persists. They have lethargy, just have a trouble getting out of bed. They kind of malaise. They have shortness of breath. And then they have brain fog. So those are, and people are incapacitated and can't go back to work. Strangely enough, we don't know why. We don't know the mechanism. About 30% of them improved after being immunized. So immunization does help with long haul COVID. The other uh, things we offer is just mainly rehabilitation, physical therapy, and occupational therapy, uh, and they tend to get over it. it. It was probably an immune response where your body is, the immunity just cranking out a lot of immune cells and fighting your own organs. That's what people think, but it's just a, it's just a hypothesis now. We don't know what causes long COVID, and we don't know what causes uh, long-lasting Lyme disease. Your comment made me think of something else that I've heard a lot, and this and it's this term nutraceutical. My understanding is that it's a food or um, perhaps a natural substance of some sort that you can take that will, quote, boost your immunity. Is it really possible that you could, quote, boost your immunity? The way I understand immunity is like this. You don't have any immunity to a disease until your body creates antibodies for that disease. So... That being said, my understanding would be that there is nothing that you can take, whether that be, you know, vitamin D or A or some other, you know, herb cocktail. There is nothing that you can take that would make you immune to COVID, right? It's true. Yeah, it's true. You're right, Claudio. It, um, there are things that make you probably less immune. And smoking, drinking, not exercising, not getting out, lots of stress, being overweight, not eating well, um, you know, certainly 
everybody, I think everybody knows that. Take care of yourself. And I always agree, you know, if um, if you get COVID or something, yeah, take some vitamins. I don't mind that. That's fine. But just don't neglect other therapies. If you want to um, protect yourself from COVID, yeah, take extra vitamins. Don't get B vitamin D deficient. Don't be vitamin A deficient. Um, um, and don't be all stressed out, but get vaccinated. I think it's just an extra level of protection. And and then if you're around people in a, in a closed space, uh, you probably ought to wear a mask. It's not a bad thing to do. Um, but just these are um, precautions against uh, getting a disease that nobody wants and, and is very contagious. But I've never heard of a vitamin-preventing disease or, or a nutritional supplement, but I do know if you get low on vitamins and minerals and, and you get high on stress and you get high on weight, and you're drinking or smoking, that certainly more susceptible to disease and, and your ability to fight off the disease, what you get, it is, is certainly lessened. You mentioned smoking, the habit. What about wildfire smoke? Is there any information about how wildfire smoke could potentially affect people's response to, to COVID-19? Yeah. I hope this fire season gets over as soon as possible. Ray heart goes out to the folks in Plumas County particularly. Whew. I think 80% of them evacuated, and we've noticed some of the smoke from from that fire already. And yeah, there's some called uh, PM 2.5. It's um, how many microns the um, the particle is, and anything below that is, you know, usually a lot of heavy particulate matter, smoke and pollen and things is larger than that, and usually falls to the ground. But in a fire, you get a lot of the stuff that is below that size, and so it's certainly recommended. If you look outside and there's smoke and, you know, you're looking at the, the red sun out there, stay indoors, you know, um, turn on the AC. Um, don't go out and exercise because you're right, Claudio. If you're out there sucking down all those particles and you happen to come across a, you know, COVID-19 virus floating around, you may not do quite as well. Yeah, this is this is a bad confluence of things with the smoke and the virus. And where do you turn your attention? All of us got go bags, and we're telling you to stay at home. You know, um, everybody wants to get out, and we're telling you to isolate. You know, uh, I don't know. It's a real hard time in this community, and and as a result, I really hope we pull together. You know, fires and COVID nineteen are common enemies that this county faces. Dr. Kellerman, I, I, I want to tell you that I sincerely appreciate all the time that you have shared with me and with KVMR. And there's been talks about who should be given a platform to speak, whether that's on social media, on the radio, etc. And so I wanted to make sure that you had an opportunity to address the audience directly, if you'd like to. Thanks, Claudia. It was a real opportunity. I, when I took this job... In January, I'm only here for a year, but how hard could this be? You know, we got a vaccine, uh, we get everybody immunized, and that's that's going to other things. It's not the case. We got the Delta now. We're in a surge, and there's areas around the world. And in Africa, only 1.2 percent of the population in Uganda is immunized, and our hospitals being overrun uh, with people that are you know have <coughs> are sick and are dying from COVID. I like to say that this. Neither fire 
No, this pandemic knows no boundaries. They don't know any boundaries um, geographic, and they don't know any political boundaries. These are common enemies. And how do we pull together as a community to look at it as saying, that is foreign, we're going to deal with it collaboratively, we're going to do with it in a community, we're going to do it in a healthy way, and we're going to do it with respect for one another and compassion. And I would hope that if we look at the virus and the fires the same way, that after this season, we can perhaps have another talk here is um, after fire season's gone and COVID's a memory, we can take on other issues that afflict this community, diseases of despair. We can talk about uh, addiction, homelessness, uh, um, depression, things that are, affect our community and, and involve us all. So I'm hoping it's, it's still a hope. And, but I'm still holding on to it that um, we can work together and we can collaborate to not only defeat a pandemic, but to bring us together in ways that we never thought was possible. So thanks, Claudia. It's my pleasure, Dr. Kellerman. Thank you so much for your time.